Welcome to CT Church. This message was recorded during our Sunday service. We hope you enjoy this presentation. Thank you for coming to church and making God a priority in your life. I believe because you have honored God and taken the time to place him at the highest priority in your life, that I believe that your work will be so much better because God will pour out his favor on you. And the favor of God is an amazing thing. We don't deserve it, yet God still gives it. And so you'll be so much better off because you honored God. If you believe that, can we give the Lord just an awesome hand clap? Yeah. Yes. I want to speak to you on the topic of daily living out your transformation. Daily living out your transformation. Taking parts of what we spoke about this morning and tying them in to the second part tonight. I always believe and I've learned in ministry that when people take the time to come to the house of the Lord, especially on a Sunday night or a Monday night, that we have as preachers of the gospel we have an obligation to bring you a red-hot message from God and give it to you exactly as God gives it to us and then get out of the way and allow the Holy Spirit to move in your life. In Romans chapter 12, starting verse 3 through 8, it's speaking about humble service in the body of Christ or walking out your transformation or living out your transformation on a daily basis. Again, Monday through Saturday, matters. Would you say that with me? Monday through Saturday matters. And I would strongly suggest that if you have the capability to take notes, to follow on the screen, because I'm going to break down for you Romans 12 and not drain it of all of its hidden diamonds. But I want to give you some things to really chew on tonight. The Apostle Paul writing in Romans 12, 3, for I say through the grace given unto me, To every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly according as God had dealt to every man the measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, and all members have not the same office, so we being many are one body in Christ, and everyone members one of another. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, whether prophecy let us prophesy. According to the proportion of faith or ministry, let us wait on our ministering, or he that teacheth on teaching, or he that exhorteth on exhortation. He that giveth, let him do it with simplicity, and he that ruleth with diligence, he that showeth mercy with cheerfulness. A while ago, a question in magazine advertisement got my attention. I was sitting on American Eagle, and I pulled out the American Airlines magazine, And one of the articles in there was titled, Is it an alarm or a calling that gets you out of bed in the morning? Is it an alarm or a calling that gets you out of bed in the morning? I like that question. I think it's something we need to ask ourselves. What gets your blood pumping? What makes you tick? All of us have someone or something we live for, some passion or ideal that we live for, something that drives our life and gives us a sense of purpose and meaning. What is your greatest passion? If you had to sum up in one phrase what you actually live for, what would you say? 
Friends, if we want to impact our world like the first century believers did, then we need to return to the principles they applied, starting with the Christianity that they practiced on a daily basis. Again, the question arises, is it an alarm or a calling that gets you out of bed in the morning? Romans chapter 12 is a turning point in the book of Romans. It speaks to us about a calling. In the previous chapters, the main emphasis in the book was Paul was explaining to them why they need a Savior and how they can accept him as their Savior in their life. However, in chapter 12, the apostle makes a huge turn. Chapter 12 begins to deal with how a Christian ought to live out his or her transformation. After he spends chapter 1 through chapter 11 telling them they need a Savior and how they can be saved, well, chapter 12 then begins the training on how you live out that salvation. Because salvation is just the beginning of the journey. How many found that to be true? Salvation is just the beginning of the journey. It's now a daily walk with God. And there are many practical points that, to daily Christian living, which begin in Romans 12 and continue to the end of the book. And I would strongly suggest that you would take some time to sit down and digest Romans 12 to study it on your own. And you will soon find out that salvation through God's grace and not our works is one of Paul's main themes. That we are saved by grace. At least no man should boast. However, a natural result of this salvation is to then have a desire to live a life pleasing to God. Hear it again. A natural result of your salvation is to have a desire to live a life pleasing to God. Again, it's a calling. What gets you out of bed in the morning? Is it an alarm or a calling? For every Christian, it should be a calling to live a life pleasing to God. That I have been given by God another day as my feet hit the ground to live a life pleasing to God. To allow worship to literally become evangelistic in my life. That as I live Monday through Friday and Saturday for him. And this is exactly what Paul is saying in Romans 12 when he calls it a living sacrifice. He said, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Paul is essentially saying that because of the information that has been presented to you earlier in chapters 1 through chapter 11, that he believes that it's a reasonable thing that you should completely be sold out to God. It's pretty reasonable, he's saying, simply because of the saving grace of God now operating in your life, you should be willing to sacrifice to be used by God in whatever means that he chooses. Living implies life. Life is an everyday experience. Offering ourselves to God is not something that should be contained within a 60-minute or 70-minute worship service on Sunday morning. A living sacrifice is a sacrifice that is alive and continuous in action. This means worship occurs not just on, in the sanctuary on Sunday morning, but the whole of our life, in each relationship, in each task, in each opportunity, each problem, each success, each failure, how we conduct ourselves on the job, how we conduct ourselves in entertainment, how we live our life on a daily basis is worship, and worship affects everything that we do and everywhere that we go. People should say, you know, there's something different about you. 
Can't quite put my finger on it, but there is something different about you. I believe I told you one time, I was sitting in the airport, and they gave an announcement, and they said, uh, they asked me to come to the desk, and I went to the desk, and they said to me, sir, uh, we're sorry, we've run out of seats and coach, so we have to bump you up to first class. Now, I hated it to you. And I said, well, I receive it, you know, praise God. And they sat me next to a multimillionaire. I know he's a multimillionaire because he told me he was a multimillionaire. Now, have you ever met someone that just looked like they needed to be slapped? They just looked like, well, this, has got, this guy was high living low life. He's sitting there drinking martinis and highballs. They're all free in first class, you know. And he's a large man, and he's taking up both seats in first class. And I was getting claustrophobic. And he looks at me, and he said, hi, I'm Frank. I said, hi, Frank, I'm Randy. He said, I've got 30 people working back there for me in coach. And I said, well, Frank, that explains why I'm up here, and I appreciate it. And he said, well, you know, I've got two computer firms. And I said, wow. Uh, he said, uh, I have a Rolex. I said, really? Hmm. I got a Timex, bro. I don't... And he's drinking highballs and martinis, and he says, you know, I rent the top floor of the Ritz-Carlton in Maui, Hawaii, out at Christmas, just for my wife and my kids and I, so we won't be bugged by the rest of them folks. folks. I said, wow. He said, I've sent my children to the greatest Ivy League universities in America. I said, okay. And he goes on to explain in great detail all the wonderful material things he has. And he looks at me, and he's just kind of perplexed, and this guy was high living low life, and I, I really didn't want to converse with him, so I said, Lord, just get him. You know, in my spirit, I didn't say it out loud. I'm just thinking, Lord, you know, this guy's bugging me. Just, just take him out, God. I'm being honest. I was very tired, you know, and, and the Holy Spirit will use the most practical things to teach you the most prophetic truth. How many have experienced that? And the Holy Spirit whispered, I told you, he gets inside information. He whispered and he said, Randy, I want you to answer his questions with peace, courtesy, and long-suffering. Yeah, no. And I'm thinking, Lord, it's a long flight. So it's long-suffering. And after he explains to me all he does in detail, he looks at me and he says, I told you what I do, now you tell me what you do. And I smiled, and I said, well, I am a chief spokesman for the richest Jew in the world. <laughs> Anybody else? And that kind of threw old Frank, and he looks at me and he says, what do you really do? And I said, well, I'm an assembly of God pastor, I'm a minister. And he said, well, you're all crooks. Now, coming from Frank, that's a compliment. But I wanted to lay the Holy Ghost 5 on his forehead. And again, the Holy Spirit whispers, answer his questions with peace, courtesy, and long-suffering. Remember I told you, worship affects everything we do and everywhere we go. Each relationship, each task, each opportunity, each problem, each success, and each failure. So I sat there on this flight, trying to answer this man's questions. And he had doctrinal questions. 
He had social questions. He wanted to know about every fallen preacher, every televangelist. And I answered all his questions to the best of my ability. Several minutes into the conversation, he looks at me and he says, you know, I told you I got kids. I sent them to Ivy League University. I said, yeah. He said, well, the only reason they call me is when they want money. And I was thinking, well, at least we have that in common. <laughs> Bobby, no, I'm sorry, I don't know you. And I said, really, I'm sorry to hear that. He said, my wife, she's quite a bit younger than me. I don't believe she loves me. And the whole conversation turned. And the Holy Spirit began to whisper, get ready. So I felt a strong prompting to begin to pray in the Spirit in my mind. Several minutes later, he tells the, wait the attendant, the waitress, I don't know what the politically correct term is, uh, a, a flight attendant, thank you. I don't want to drink anymore. So now we're sitting there, and he looks out the window. He looks at me. Now there's tears. And he says, you know, you irk me. I go, really? Why? He said, because you don't have much, I can tell. It's like, he said, you don't have much, I can tell. He said, but. You're making me feel like all you have means everything, and the little bit I have means nothing. Oh, come on now. <laughs> True worship moves away from the couple hours in church. And I just began to pray in the Spirit in my mind, said, oh, Holy Spirit, get him, Lord. Just get him, Lord. And now he's got tears, and he looks at me, and he says, like I said, you don't have much I can tell. But he said, and you're making me feel like all I have means nothing, and the little you have means everything. And then he says this. He says, in fact, you irk me so much because there's something around you that's driving me crazy. It's just making me feel uncomfortable. And I said, well, Frank, I believe God wants to get your attention. And I began to walk him down what we call the Roman road to salvation. And as I'm speaking with him, he's nodding his head. All of a sudden, something very scary happened. As I pause a little bit in the Roman road discussion, Frank, a very large man, reaches over and grabs my hand. And I'm thinking to myself, excuse me, you don't know me like that. <laughs> and he grabs my hand and he lays it on his chest. And he turns to me the best he can in the chair. And with tears, he says, you're a preacher, you're a pastor. I said, yes. You're explaining to me the book of Romans. I said, yes. He says, then you know what to do. I need help. I need Jesus. And big old tears are rolling down his face. I led Frank in a sinner's prayer. He accepts the Lord. He's so excited. We land the, the plane, and I'm getting off. And Frank is so excited. He's jumping up and down. He says, what's next? What's next? I said, I don't know, bro. I, I got to go got to catch another flight. He goes, no, 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 you can't go yet. You can't go yet. And I said, well, Frank, where are you headed? I'm headed home. Where do you live? South Carolina. I said, really, where? Somerville. 
Really? He said, yeah. I said, well, there's a church I want you to go to. I explained the church and where it was. And he said, bro, we live in the subdivision right behind that church. And I said, I want you to go to that church. He said, can't go. I said, why not? Can't do it. Why can't you go, Frank? He said, because that's the white church. Frank's a man of color. I said, the white church? He goes, yeah, it's the white church. I said, that's not the white church. It's the red brick church with the fountain out front. <laughs> he goes, no, 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 it's the white, where all the white people go. I said, I know what you meant. And we're kind of laughing, you know. I said, I want you to go. He said, they won't like me there. I said, Frank, listen, I know the pastor. He let me sleep in his house. I think that was more impressive to Frank than anything. He said, bro, you slept in the white man's house. <laughs> I said, yeah. I said, Frank, if he'll let the Puerto Rican sleep in his house, he'll let you go to his church. He goes, yeah. So he gets on the phone and he calls his wife. Now listen, I know I'm not supposed to listen, but when you're born Latin, <laughs> you learn to listen to five different conversations at once. Come on now. I mean, it's a gifting given to every Puerto Rican, every Hispanic. We can listen to five conversations. Everybody talks at once. Anybody else know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> so I'm listening, but I knew it wasn't supposed to. And I hear Frank say this. No, it's not the white church. It's the red brick church with the fountain out front. I get a call several months later, and it's from the lead pastor of that church. He goes, hey. I said, hey. You know Frank? I said, yeah. You know, he brought his whole family, and they all got saved. I said, that's amazing, man. He goes, yeah. Did you know he's a multimillionaire? I said, yeah. He said, oh, man, he's been a blessing to our church. <laughs> oh, come on, praise him a little. Yeah. And the whole point of me sharing that story is true worship moves away from the couple hours in church to all of the hours of our lives in every activity, every relationship, every task, every opportunity you find yourself in. And it never ceases to amaze me that we develop a kind of selective Christianity that allows us to deeply and sincerely be involved in worship and church activities and yet almost totally a non-Christian in the day-to-day -day activities of our life. Friends, money through Saturday matters. And what's even sadder is that most of us in church never realize the discrepancy. A.W. Tozier wrote, if you will not worship God seven days a week, you do not truly worship God one day a week. Paul then shows us in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, how to accomplish a daily walk with God. And he starts out by saying, and be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That you may prove what is good and acceptable and perfect will of God. In other words, he's saying, don't let the world shape your thoughts. Don't get your marriage information from Oprah or Dr. Phil, who's not even a real doctor. 
Don't let the world shape your mind or the negative thoughts and the patterns that are all around you. Don't let the negativity of your job, don't let the negativity of the culture rob you of who you are in Jesus Christ. Instead, allow God's Holy Spirit to step in and control your daily life as you submit your thoughts to him. The practical outworking of that will be a voluntarily wanting or longing to follow God's plan that he has already designed for you. God has a plan. God has a purpose. He's designed it for your life, your unique situation. Thankfully, we are not left wondering what God's plan is. Paul begins to lay out some very practical ways we can obey God's plan in the following verses. Look at Romans 12 through 8. And Paul immediately says in verse 3, spiritual gifts emerge when we display a right attitude towards others. Hear that again. Spiritual gifts emerge when we express a right attitude towards others. Those that are living in our house, oh, Lord, use me to save the world. Mijo, you can't even save your own house. Lord, I want to reach the world. You don't even talk to your kids about the Lord. Romans 12, verse 3. For I say through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly according as God had dealt to every man the measure of faith. Paul makes the admonition very clear. Spiritual pride has no place in the life of a person who has given himself freely to God. The question that arises, okay, what is spiritual pride? Well, Paul answers it immediately. He defines it as thinking of oneself more highly than we ought. If spiritual pride is not dealt with, it'll give way to assuming that I've got certain gifts and knowledge of God that I really don't have. And we have many, many people have run into this. Many Christians have fallen into this trap. They are in positions of influence and authority in the church, despite the fact that God never intended them to be there. Or at one time, God used them in a great way. Through healing, or the flowing of the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they laid hands on someone, and they were healed, or they brought someone to the Lord through the saving grace and knowledge of God, and people left the hurt and the pain of their life and their sin, and they became a new creation in Christ. And instead of the love of God as their motivation, the people that God used, suddenly now, they continue with personal pride, and it's the personal pride that drove them. Look what I've done. Boy, I must be pretty popular in heaven. Look at my anointing. Look at my giftings. Look at my abilities. And personal pride that drove them forward instead of the love of God. And the tragedy is the landscape of the church is littered with people and ministries and ministers that once walked with God and no longer walked with him because of the sin of spiritual pride. And each one of us knows someone in our lifetime that at one time walked mighty with God and then spiritual pride came in and you say, what happened to them? They used to come to church all the time and they were so used of God. Friends, listen to this timely truth. True spiritual leadership and spiritual pride cannot coexist. True spiritual leadership and spiritual pride cannot coexist. If a man or woman is really called of God, God will, be, God will begin to squeeze all the spiritual pride out of them. I'll have people at the end of service tell me, oh, Randy, I, I want to have your ministry. I want to do what you do. And I say, mijo, be careful what you ask for. 
Because to get a greater anointing, there's a whole lot of squeezing going on, and it's not the kind of squeezing you get from your wife or your husband. God will squeeze you until every bit of pride is gone. And he'll usually use your godly spouse. My wife will say, uh-uh, this ain't the holiday in here. There's nobody. I'm, I'm not your, your maid. You better pick that up. The dog made a mess in the garage, preacher. Go get your happy stuff out there and clean up the little dog surprises in the garage. There is no spiritual pride when you're scooping up dog surprise. I'll tell you right now. The result is that they, we will either choose to either allow the Spirit of God to kill our pride or we will adjust what they call truth to fit our pride. Hear it again. We will either choose to allow God to squeeze us out of all of our spiritual pride, or we will address what we call truth to fit our own pride. And those who allow God to form them, God will use over and over again. Those who do not surrender to God will ultimately be put, put themselves on the throne of their own life and will likely assume that anything which contradicts them, well, that cannot be the truth of God's word. And how many times have I heard, well, that's how I interpret the word. That's my revelation. Even scripture, they will eventually fall from grace because spiritual pride, and they'll say, well, you have your way that you define scripture. I define it my way. And when I say this, I think of all the mighty televangelists that fell from grace. God restores them by faith, but the sword never leaves their house. And when I say that, I was sharing a story with a pastor yesterday at dinner. I was coming up an aisle in a church in Branson, Missouri. Elderly gentleman was standing there, and he motions me over, and he says, young man, uh, can I speak to you? And I said, sure. He introduced himself. He said, my name is Marvin Gorman. Now, for those of you who are a lot younger than me, or for those of you that haven't been in the church world a long time, you don't know the name Marvin Gorman. But Marvin Gorman in the 80s and the 70s and the 80s, early 90s, was one of the most powerful televangelists. His church in Louisiana, thousands and thousands of people attended. In fact, Marvin Gorman and Jimmy Swaggart are the ones who got into the televangelist wars together. Marvin Gorman looked at me and he said, you know, our church at one time was seeing massive healings. I spoke to several pastors who knew him personally and they would say, Randy was amazing. People would stand out six o'clock in the morning out in front of the church to get into a 11, uh, 6 p.m. service. The lines would wrap around the building. And Marvin Gorman told me, he said, I was reading scripture and I noticed that David had taken the Philistine swords and shields and he had mounted them in his hall as a reminder of what God had given him. So we began to take walkers and wheelchairs and crutches and hang them up on the walls of the Family Life Center as a reminder to what God had done. And people were being healed and delivered and set free. It was an amazing time in the history of our church. And he's looking at me and explaining, and tears are rolling down Brother Gorman's face. He said, son, but don't do what I did. Protect the anointing. 
And I said, well, Brother Gorman, since you opened the door, what is it that you did that caused you to lose such a great anointing? And he looked right at me, and he said, matter-of-factly, well, it was Jan Crouch. Now, for those of you who don't know, Jan and Paul Crouch used to host the TBN. They founded Trinity Broadcasting Network. At one time in their life, God was using them in an amazing way. And I said, well, how did Sister Crouch get involved? He said, well, at the time, they were producing shows for Jimmy Swaggart. And they were putting Swaggart in his camp meeting on 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And it kind of bothered me, so I asked her. I said, Jan, why is it that you're not putting our church on? Our church is bigger. Our church is closer. You don't have to go so far. And she smiled and she said to him, oh, Marvin, come on. And he goes, no, no, why aren't you doing it? And she said this, well, Jimmy's a lot better looking and he's got better music. And he said, at that moment, something pierced my heart. And I decided, okay, all right. And it started the wars, and pastors explaining to me that Jimmy Swagger was the one that blew the whistle on this guy, on Marvin Gorman. Marvin Gorman came back and blew the whistle on him, and it was a back and forth, back and forth. But that day, Marvin Gorman said, Sir, I was going to make it my life's goal to destroy the life of Jimmy Swagger and show everyone he was a con man. Meanwhile, it was him that was also living in sin. Spiritual pride rose up. If you read your word, you will find out that it was spiritual pride that came into the life of an archangel named Lucifer or Lucent or angel of light. In the book of Isaiah, he says four times, I will ascend to the throne of God. I will sit on the throne. He will worship me. Spiritual pride. And I look at the landscape of what's happening in the church today. And I ask myself, Lord, are, you really see, are we really seeing a pure move of God? Or are people taking what they feel and adjusting what they call truth to fit their pride? It's an amazing thing. And they'll eventually fall from grace because of spiritual pride. And we sit there and we watch and we say, Lord, how could it happen? And my heart breaks for them. But send and hear the warning, I'm longing for you to protect the anointing of God in your life. The latter part of verse 3 says, God has given to every man a measure of faith. Paul is telling us that for each measure, there's an outlet or a function in the body of Christ. Don't miss this. God is telling us that we should be content to operate within that measure. And you'll have televangelists or people come out and say, oh, God, God wants to give you a greater measure of faith, a greater, wait, wait, no, no, he has given me in my life a set measure. God is telling us that we should be content to operate within the things that he's giving us. Doing so is true worship because it's surrender to God's will. Yet don't miss what I'm about to tell you here. Human nature can step in and assume the more visible and glorified positions in the body of Christ are the ones which require the greater measure of faith. And they'll sit there and say, well, because you have the public ministry, you must have a greater measure of faith than I. Those are lies from the pits of hell. 
because you're doing this or you're doing that or you're visual, God must love you more and you have a greater measure of faith than I do. When the reality is, most of the time, those positions require little faith. It's just that we're gifted in certain areas. And I'm operating in my gifting, and so it's easy. So it doesn't require a great measure of faith. It's a little measure of faith. It often takes the greater faith to remain unseen. And seemingly, in the minds of men, wasted than it does to be in the limelight, working mildly for God. But in my opinion, it's a greater measure of faith to commit yourself to the nursery. When nobody is there watching you, and you're faithful, and you're honest, and you're pouring into the hearts of those babies, it takes a greater measure of faith for you to show up on Sunday and work in the parking lot. And nobody says thank you, and everybody's going by you, because we all want to be in this, to hear the great preacher. These are just my giftings. It doesn't take a greater measure. God doesn't love me any more than he loves you. And each one of us has been given a measure of faith that we operate in. And Paul says you should be content with that. Romans 12, 4, 5 explains the reason why we should not think more highly of ourselves than we ought. The reason is we are only one part of the whole scheme of the body of Christ. Listen to verse 4 through 5. For as we have many members in one body, and all members have not the same office, so we being many are one body in Christ, and every one members one of another. Do you know, after 30 years of ministry, this is actually very encouraging to me. That all members have not the same office. It means I don't have to be like anybody else. I've had people email me, well, if you were more like this guy, or if you were more like that guy, if you were more like Jensen Franklin, he's on TV, you need to be on TV. If, if you were just more like him or her, and I look at them and say, guys, I'm just being who God made me. Neither does any other member of the body have any business trying to mold me into their own image. I wish you were more like Pastor Doug. Really? I, I wish you were more like this guy or that guy. You know, we had uh, my wife, her personality is she doesn't like to be in the forefront. My wife is gifted with business and she works behind the scenes. And so I used to sing for Trinity Broadcasting Network and one of these hyper-faith ladies walked up to her. And, you know, they said, uh, well, you know what? You're going to be a detriment to your husband because you're not up there playing the piano or the organ. And she looked at me. She, she said, oh, I'm getting ready. To I said, no. You know, my wife grew up in the hood in Los Angeles. And the moment I saw her head start to go like this from across the room, I said, uh-uh. We got a problem. <laughs> and I ran over there, and I got there just in time to hear her say, my husband does not need a cheerleader. What he needs is a godly woman behind the scenes keeping his feet planted in God's word. My job is to raise the kids. My job is to make sure he's got a fresh word. So I really don't, and she was reading this woman the riot act. I said, okay, babe, back down now there. And that's what Paul is saying. Neither does any member of the body have any business trying to mold you into their own image. They didn't make you. They didn't create you. Each member is unique, yet part of the body of Christ. Here's another eternal question. What does God mean when he talks about the body of Christ? See, too often we limit the term body of Christ to the church that exists today. But the body of Christ includes all who have been in Christ, either alive or asleep. 
And this takes on tremendous significance when God speaks of the body of Christ or the bride making herself ready. I heard a podcast from a very well-known young preacher. Uh, he wears the skinny jeans. He's got the cute little goatee, you know, and he's got all, everybody following him. And, and he said, uh, he said, hey, listen, God can't, Jesus can't come again until, you know, because the body's not ready. We got, he's talking about how the body of Christ is not ready. And I'm listening to him and I'm saying, well, you know what? You have a warped understanding of who the body of Christ is. You see, he's not talking in Scripture about the end-time church or just the end-time church. He's talking about the cumulative bride, which has been built for over 2,000 years. The church that has been built for over 2,000 years. This is important to understand. And again, I heard many preachers say Jesus can't come at any minute because the church today, the bride is not ready for Christ to come back. However, if the bride of Christ is more than what we see at the end time church, who's to say what ready really is? And there's not a prophecy that still needs to be fulfilled that's holding Jesus back. According to end time theology, every prophecy given for the coming of the Son of Man has been fulfilled. Do you know the only thing holding Jesus back is his love for the lost? God's love for the lost is the only thing. In fact, the Bible says not even Jesus knows when he's going to come. Only the Father in heaven. And in my mind, I see Jesus rocking. He's going back and forth. Come on, Lord, I want to get my bride. Can I go, Father? Can I go? Not yet. Not yet. So hear me. If you want Christ to come again... Win the lost. Win the lost. The only thing holding him back is his love for your children that are not saved. Thank God for grace. The only thing holding him back is the love he has for your father and mother that are not yet saved. For the next door neighbor that is not yet saved. It's by the grace of God, that mercy seat, the mercy of God that's holding back the hand that he's saying, not yet. We can get one more, one more, one more. We can rescue from the fires of hell. Oh, if you believe that, somebody clap your hands and praise him. That it's the mercy and the grace of God that he has not come yet. And that should make you want to shout. Romans 12, 6 through 7 and 8, Paul gives practical instruction to the church. He tells us how the church needs to function and how to conduct our relationships. Verse 6, having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, whether prophecy, let us prophesy according to the proportion of faith, or ministry, let us wait on our ministering, or he that teaches on teaching, or he that exhorteth on exhortation, he that gives, let him do it with simplicity, he that rules with discretion with diligence, he that shows mercy with cheerfulness. Let me explain this in layman's terms and then bring you to this altar. The original language needs to be examined in this passage or we lose a bit of the meaning in the King James Version or the King James English. Paul lists here seven spiritual gifts. Not to be confused with the 12 spiritual gifts, these are seven added gifts of the Spirit. Paul lists then seven along with the motivation under which each should be carried out. These two verses are better translated in the original text. The original text says, if we have the gift of prophecy, let us ex exercise it according to the measure of faith God has given. If we have the gift of ministry or serving, let us likewise exercise it according to faith. What does God mean when he tells us exercise our gifts according to the proportion of faith? Well, just think how it would be if we tried to exercise them 
outside of the faith which God has given. You would have a bunch of people going around exercising gifts under the power of the flesh and certainly outside of the will of God, and now confusion is breaking out in the body. Instead of staying within the limits of the gifts God has given, people would stray outside of those limits. In short, instead of allowing God to use the gifts through them to work his will, you would have a group of people using the gifts to work their will, although they will call it God's will. Again, dealing with spiritual pride. If you read verses 3 through 8, we see it clearly what Paul is getting at. He says, he tells us not to become proud or arrogant about our faith or about our gifts. He then tells us we need to stay within the limits of God's will in the exercising of the gifts and to allow the gifts to operate as a byproduct of our fellowship and our walk with God. In other words, don't force it. Obedience to this passage would completely eliminate any individual taking upon himself to be a teacher or a leader in the church. Well, I feel like I've got to teach this class. Or, you know, you've you're, you got to step aside because this is my job. No one, no one through spiritual pride would appoint themselves as, or a special person and say, well, God wants me to do this and force their way in. No, I have my gifts. You have your gifts. We have gifts which differ according to our measure of faith and according to God's purpose in our life. The gifts operate according to the faith God gives for his purpose and through whom he chooses to make us all special and all individual. (coughs) Yet it links together as one member, one body of Christ. Listen, prophecy is not limited to foretelling the future. Indeed, there is very little of that in the New Testament. There is very little of that at all in New Testament prophecy. Prophecy is the God-inspired utterance of truth. It is the Spirit of God cutting through confusion and human thinking, exposing things as they really are. Prophecy is the verbalization of how God sees things according to God's Word. Sadly, there have been many abusers of prophecy in the church. Today we find such things as personal prophecy, That is, Christians giving messages from God to other Christians drives me crazy. But there is almost no example of this in New Testament Scripture. Indeed, if we read 1 Corinthians 14, we find no mention of such a thing. Furthermore, when the gift of prophecy is manifest, it always carries certain characteristics. It always is uplifting, encouraging, and Jesus Christ is the center of that prophecy. He's exalted and made more real. Never is prophecy filled with condemnation or fear. Never does it tell someone something specific they should do, like marry a certain person or quit a certain job. Never does it glorify any man, any group, or flatter people in a way which is spiritually unhealthy. There are many teachings in the Bible about how we are to test the spirits. We need to take them seriously. It's no, it's no light thing that someone is claiming to speak for God. It's a scary thing when you say, well, I speak for God. Well, you better know what you're talking about. I've had several pastor friends who call me broken and weeping because their daughters or their sons went to a conference and the guy who was speaking, he said, hey, God told me you're to marry this person, you're to marry this person, and he put them together and the life was a shambles. How sad. I had one man come to me, one lady, excuse me, come to me, and uh, I guess she was with her husband, but she was doing all the talking, 
And she said, God is going to give you a pink Cadillac to carry out his purpose in your life. I said, really? I said, listen, the only way I'm getting a pink Cadillac is if my wife works for Mary Kay. (laughs) So go on, babe, do your thing. That's nonsense. God wouldn't give me a pink Cadillac. Give me a black Cadillac with... (laughs) No, I'm teasing. The gift of prophecy does not need to come out in some strange trance-like state. Use the force. Oh. No. It gets me, like I said this morning, you don't have to be weird to be used of God. And why people who get into intercession, they start these intercessory, they become weird. Don't get weird. You just chase people away. Let me say amen to that. It's like the twilight zone. No, I don't. The Holy Spirit doesn't operate that way. The gift of prophecy does not need to come out in some strange-like trance. It may be manifest in ordinary conversation. Listen. That prophecy may come out in ordinary conversation without you even knowing that you're exercising the gift. As you're walking closely with Christ, most of those gifts will come this way. You might be sitting with someone at Starbucks or sitting with them at at a restaurant, and you're just talking about the things of God. And as you're talking, it's flowing out of you, and you're laughing together, and you don't realize that person is getting a word of fulfillment. It's feeding a need. You're speaking right into their life, and you're saying, when I was going through this, when I was doing, when I, and suddenly all these giftings are coming out of you, and they look at you and say, Man, were you sitting on my couch? It's like, bro, do you have a secret microphone in my house? It's like you're, you're talking about everything. You're speaking God's word into the truth of their life. That's prophecy. And when you're really walking with God, it just, it's a natural flow. You don't have to try to make it happen. It's just a natural flow of how God moves in your life. That doesn't mean that it won't come during a church meeting or a gathering. Paul tells us they do, but we can't limit them to that setting or that setting or any of that setting for that matter. How about the gift of ministry or serving? This may surprise us. We've been probably told that all of us are called to serve. Yes, that's true. So how does the gift of service differ from the general calling to serve? Listen, the gift of serving goes beyond the general call in that it involves a supernatural ability to edify and uplift others. It's a supernatural ability to edify and uplift others, and you don't even know you're doing it. People who just, they look at you and you're you're talking. Have you ever met someone that just when you're talking with them, you walk away feel so much better? It's just they just uplift you and, and they just say the right thing at the right time. That's a God-given gift. At the right time, they'll just say something and you'll say, yeah, I'm holding on to that. This serving can take many forms. It's not limited to those who are officially ordained in some ministry. It is not learned by study. It's a gift of the Holy Spirit. 
but only God can do a work in a person's heart which will condition them to receive true revelation. Only the Holy Spirit can open your eyes. I can't preach well enough. I can't sing well enough. I can't teach well enough. Unless the Holy Spirit comes and opens your revelation, it will not happen. So every day when you get up and your feet hit the floor, you say, Lord, open their eyes and use me that they would see a Savior. Open their eyes, Lord. Oh, come on. If you believe that, clap it. Yeah. Then we have the gift of teacher. The gift of teacher is the gift God uses once the Holy Spirit has conditioned their hearts. Once the Holy Spirit has opened their eyes to understanding. Once they've come to know the knowledge of Christ. The gift of teacher is used to bring articulation and rational understanding to all the things God has done in their life. See, a teacher then has the gift to put into words and thoughts those abstract things which we previously could not seem to grasp and they put it in a tangible way that we can understand. They come to know Christ, and then a teacher comes along and says, well, what happened is you got born again. Oh, born again, what does that mean? See, those are things that someone who doesn't know Jesus has no idea. They look at you and go, born again? That's, that's weird. <coughs> but a teacher explains it. And we're sitting there wondering how the Holy Spirit did a certain thing in our lives, and God brings about a teacher or someone who's not even a quote-unquote teacher, but somebody who would teach us in our walk with Christ. The question, of course, is how does the teacher himself get the revelation? And the answer is it never by study alone, although study can give a point of reference and confirmation or revelation. A teacher gets revelation by passing through various experiences with Jesus and emerging as one who has lived what he is about to teach. In other words, when you go through a hurt in your marriage, God will use that hurt to help teach someone else how to make it through. It's in the desert experiences of life as you walk with God that he uses those experiences in you to teach someone else. Of course, all that a teacher shares is in full harmony with the Bible. And the word of God is always the final confirmation. But living what the word reveals goes far beyond simply knowing what it says. Then you have the gift of exhortation. As used here, it's the same word which is used to describe the Holy Spirit or helper. It is parakleo, which means call to one side. Parakleo means call to one side. So the gift is used by God to stabilize others in Christ. If I exhort someone... I am standing by their side in Christ. I am allowing them to presently feed off of me so that they might gain enough strength of faith to put me aside and begin feeding off of Christ himself. The true gift of the exhortation will have one goal in mind. If you really have the gift of exhortation, your one goal is simply this, to make yourself obsolete as quickly as possible and get the other person into business with leaning on Christ and going to Christ for themselves. All the gifts really have that end. They are never to be used to gain a following or to glorify the vessel or to pump you up. Every time someone is healed, the Holy Spirit is saying, isn't Jesus wonderful? Isn't Jesus marvelous? Every gift we're talking about here all points to Jesus. How about the gift of giving? The gift of giving, we don't often think of giving as a gift, but it is. 
A well-known pastor was being interviewed by a magazine, and he was asked, how often do you preach on giving? And he said to the man, every week. And he said, the reporter said, you preach on giving every week? He said, yes, I think what you meant to ask was, how often do you preach on giving money? And that's about once every three years. Every three years, I do a series on stewardship and generosity. He went on to say, but you didn't ask me how often I preach on giving money. You asked me how often I preach on giving. Listen, friends, every preacher who is worth anything knows we can't preach on grace and not preach on giving. For John 3.16 says, for God so loved the world that he, that he gave. If God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. We cannot preach on marriage and not teach about giving because a marriage will not work if both people are not givers. So immediately we need to grab the concept that when the Bible speaks about giving, it's not only speaking about finances. All Christians, of course, realize, should realize this, that everything we own and everything we are already belongs to God. And such, all that God allows us to have could be continually open for him to use any way he wants. He could take it from us or let us have it. It's up to him. Yet there is a gift of giving. Again, any gift of God is supernatural. If it were natural, it would be our gifts, not the gifts of the Holy Spirit. This makes the giving of, or gift of giving manifest the character of God. So what is the gift of giving? It is the ability to impart to someone something of yourself which will edify Christ in them. Hear it again. The gift of giving is the ability to impart to someone something of myself which will edify them in Christ. In other words, I'm going to give of myself. I'm going to help you so that you could see Christ in me, which is the hope of glory. And I'm going to come alongside of you that you'll lean on him and not on me one day. And so you have people like that. They're just amazing givers. Next, Paul says, he that rules, let him rule. What is this gift? The word means to stand before, to maintain, to guide, to lead. Basically, this is a God-given ability to be a pioneer for God. Someone that blazes the trail on your job and starts a Bible study when no one else is doing a Bible study. If I have this gift, I am used by God to be an example to others, to pave a way into a greater revelation for others, to stand by faith where others may fail. This gift is sort of like being a, a support post of God's house. By my experience and my example, I am able to lead others into keeping focus upon Christ. Notice there is little about this gift which entitles giving orders or telling Christians what to do. No, it, it is more of a meaning that I want you to go ahead and, and lean on me or I will, I will show you how to walk this path. I will I'll be a pioneer and show you how to do these things. And as you follow me, I'll follow Christ. It's an amazing how God works. And then there's the gift of mercy. Mercy involves more than simply forgiving others for what they have done. In fact, it, this gift doesn't carry that meaning at all. The gift of mercy is the supernatural ability to feel as others feel, to empathize with them, to bear their burden. It involves intercession and the ability to become one with their trials. Have you ever walked into the office? Maybe you have those cubicles, and as you walk by a cubicle, the Spirit of the Lord stops you, and you immediately know Something's going on with this person. 
and you start to feel what they're feeling. Is there anybody else who might just weird? And you start, and there's been times that, that I'll just walk into the hospital doing a hospital visitation, and, and I'm there to visit someone in the bed, and yet God starts speaking to me about the people that are visiting them. And you stop right in your tracks, and you feel something well up and inside, and you're holding back the tears. Or there's times that I'll go visit my wife at work, and there'll be somebody there in the waiting room. I don't even know them. And, and I start to, to sense something's going on. And I got to say, Holy Spirit, not here. Not, I'm about to have a Holy Ghost fit in the middle of this waiting room, waiting for the dentist. No, Lord. Not, and the Lord says, no, no, you just listen to me. You'll be obedient to me. This is a divine encounter. That's the gift of mercy. To be able to feel and empathize with others. And somebody finally says, you lean over and say, hey, you know, my name is so-and-so. I was sitting here, and excuse me if I'm being a little rude, uh, but what's going on with your dad? You know my dad? No, my heavenly father knows your dad, and I'm just kind of sitting here, and, and when it's God, the tears. Has anybody ever experienced that? That's called the gift of mercy. And we need all the gifts operating in the body of Christ. Every single one of them. Now we can restate the gifts and apply them to ourselves. Prophecy, the supernatural ability to expose something for what it is. Ministry, the supernatural ability to serve God in the lives of others. Teacher is the gift God uses once the Holy Spirit has conditioned our hearts to bring articulation and rationalization and understanding. Exhortation the supernatural ability to be stabilizing agent for someone until they could stand for Christ himself. Giving, the supernatural ability to impart to others something of myself, my possessions in a way that will edify Christ. In other words, I, I can't pay the bills this month. Well, here, let me cover that for you. God has blessed us. Leadership, the calling to be used of God as a pioneer and example which will draw others to Christ. And mercy, the supernatural ability to empathize with others and to bear one another's burdens. Whenever the gifts may be in question, whenever the gifts may be the question, is what, whatever the gifts are, the question may be is what I'm trying to say. Are you protecting the anointing? I want our musicians to come quickly. And the question is, can God trust you to be a humble servant? This is the lesson that Moses had to learn, and I want you to look at it briefly. The Bible tells us that God told Moses, after 40 years of being in the desert, I will use you again. Which tells us that after a desert experience where you feel God's not using you at all, if you keep walking with him, he's going to use you again. And the Bible says that God speaks to him from a burning bush, and the Lord says, Moses, take off your sandals, the place where you are standing is holy ground. Now let me break this down a little for you as we get ready to come to the altar. The place was just not a two-by-four piece of real estate. See, the ground was made holy because God is holy. No, the actual Greek rendering is, Moses, you're at a place of reception and ready to listen. In other words, your life's purpose and plan Everything that's brought you to this point right here, you're at a place in your life where you've got to hear from me. 
Moses, you're about to bring 2.5 million Jews out of bondage. You've got to hear from me. You're at a place in your life where you are finally ready to receive and listen. Is there anybody else here at a place in your life that you were ready to receive from God? And you got to hear from him because, Lord, I want to make sure that I'm operating in the right giftings. Is there anybody else that says, Lord, I'm ready to receive? The place where I am standing. What's amazing is God says the same thing to Joshua. Take off your sandals for the place. In other words, you're at a place of reception and ready to listen. You're at a transition point in your life, Joshua. You've got to do in 48 hours what the greatest prophet in the nation of Israel couldn't do in 40 years. You've got to take them now out of the desert into the promise of God. He's at a place of reception and ready to listen. And I believe those that are sitting here, you have come because you're at a place of reception and ready to listen. As I was teaching on the giftings, some of you say, well, that's me. I got that gift and I got this one and I could do that. So how do I have God use me all the time? Here's the key. God told Moses, mijo, what do you have in your hand? A rod, a stick, throw it down. The stick became a snake, and Moses ran from it. And I laughed because I'd have run too. I'm not a snake handler, and I'd have run too. And the Holy Spirit whispered, no, Randy, it's not funny. He's running from his calling. You see, the snake represented the supernatural. And it was going to take a supernatural move of God to bring those Israelites out of the bondage of Egypt. And there are some of you that as I'm teaching on the giftings, I'm watching you, and you yeah, yeah. And you're realizing it's going to take a supernatural move of God for you to really operate in those giftings and abilities. Moses grabbed it by the tail, and he grabs it by the tail, and it becomes a stick again and my eyes of understanding just flew open you see the miracle wasn't so much that the stick became a snake the miracle was after God was done using that snake in a supernatural way it was content to go back to be ordinary average every day can God use you in giftings on a Sunday morning can he use you in the gift of exhortation? Can he use you in the gift of prophecy in a conversation at Starbucks? Can he use you in a supernatural way and you bring people to Christ and lives are healed and you not get a big head? Can you transition well? Because we've all seen all those televangelists that God used them in miraculous ways and they couldn't transition well and we don't hear about them anymore. Can God use you in a supernatural way on Sunday in the, on the platform or a supernatural way in the nursery? Can God use you in an amazing way? And the next week you don't say, well, God, if I'm not there doing the same thing, then are you content after God uses you just to be go home and be average, ordinary, everyday, husband, wife, son, daughter? If you are, and if you can transition well, 
God will use you over and over and over and over and over again. He'll just throw you down like that stick in front of a bunch of Egyptians. Let you be used in a supernatural way. When he's done with you, he'll pick you back up and you become ordinary average. And you point everyone to Jesus. Now, how many are hungry for that? To be used of God in a supernatural way and not get a big head. To transition well. To say, Holy Spirit, whatever you want to do in my life, I'm ready. I'm willing. Take me, use me, anoint me. I'm at a place of reception and ready to listen. I want a supernatural move of God to move in my life. God, use me in a supernatural way. And when the seasons of life come and when the seasons of life go, I'll be able to stand in the presence of God knowing that I have been a faithful servant and I've pointed everyone to Jesus, not for my glory, but for the glory of God. If that's you, I want you to stand right now and I want you to lift your hands and begin to praise Him. If God can always God can always use you in amazing ways, the question is, how hungry are you for the real thing of God? You have been listening to CT Church in San Antonio, Texas. This recording was presented in the context of our Sunday service. For more information, please visit us at ctagsa.com, connect with us on Facebook, or call us at 210 657 3578.